So here's where we're going. As I said last week, we're taking a little break from John because I want to clarify just to make sure everybody understands where we're going as a church over especially this next year. And I want to lay out for you just some things that are, that are very important. And so in it, what I did last week is I just shared this idea that what we're seeking to do is really to understand what God has been doing from the very beginning. When he created humanity, he designed us to be his image bearers, which means at the core of it, what humans are designed to do is to reflect how phenomenal God is. That's what made the fall so terrible. That's what made the, the, the lineage then of just sin so awful. But we talked about with Abraham and Moses and David. And then this amazing thing, if you've been reading the book of 1 Peter with me, and I hope you have, I know a few of you have come up and said, oh, thanks, 1 Peter's been great, is in 1 Peter 1, 11, 12, 13, it talks about these prophets that we're looking at it going, no way, there's going to be a time when Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31 that God is going to write the law on people's hearts. And Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36 that not only that, but he's going to compel this group of people to obey. And specifically Isaiah, the way he talks about it in Isaiah 43 is that then this group of people that are pulled out by God, that are empowered by God, will declare the praises of God to the world. God didn't save you so that you don't go to hell. God saved you to praise the one who's worthy. And what happens oftentimes, and we talked about this last week, when we make salvation about hell and not what we've been saved to and for, pretty soon people can come to know Jesus and wonder, okay, I'm not going to hell, what now? And forget, are you kidding me? Now we get to what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2, 2. We get to grow up into our salvation. We get to become what God intended now, the humanity that he meant that would now accurately reflect who God is. And so what we connected it to specifically was just this idea that of 1 Peter 2.9, and if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter 2. That's where we're going to be is in 1 Peter, kind of bouncing around in that particular book. But in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, this is why God did it. He made you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that would be his apart from anyone else. And then he gives the purpose of it so that you might proclaim the excellencies of God as these people that have been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's why God has saved us. That's why God puts us together as a church. At the end of the day, what Jesus is seeking to do in our lives through the Holy Spirit if you look at like Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 3, is he seeking to make these group of people that live and walk in such a way that when you look at them, you can tell they're Jesus followers. There's something different about them. There's something unique in what God's done to them. But the way that we conveyed it last week, and this is so important to get into our heads, please listen to me. I do not become like Jesus working harder I get transformed to look like Jesus by drawing nearer to God. God did everything that he did. He, he separated us from sin. He rose from the grave to empower us. To, he says to draw us to himself so that in that means, by that way now, God's people, as they're coming near to God, are miraculously transformed and they begin to look and walk and act like Jesus did when he was on this earth. That's why when we say in our purpose statement that our whole heart is, is that we would help you become fully devoted followers of Jesus, people that know Jesus and walk with Jesus. Why? 
Because that is the means by which we're going to be able to convey an accurate picture of God to everyone. See, it's not just about bringing people into here and to hear an accurate picture preached from the gospel. What Jesus wants to do is send all of God's people out here, out of this room together to live an accurate picture of the gospel. And you guys know this, that the, probably the greatest reason people give for not believing in the gospel is not because a guy at some event gave a great message. The excuses they make are this big thing called hypocrisy. Now, I think there's a good answer for that, but at the core of it is that God wants us to be this group of people that live like who we are. And again, not just to do events. I think we have so relied on events that we've missed the fact we are the event. God's people are the event. When we go to work, when we go to school, in our marriages, in our families, in all these different things of our life, God's people are looking in on us and we are the event accurately all the time or even sometimes inaccurately portraying to people, this is who God is. And so at the end of it, that's why when we come to our purpose statement, we want every person to be able to see this accurate picture of who God is by helping those who believe become fully devoted followers of Jesus. Now, the question is how? And last week, I kind of touched on it, that the how is we talk about all the time here at Cornerstone, we'll love God, love people. But to be honest with you, that's kind of a a vague statement. Like, what do you mean by that? And so what I'm going to be doing over these next few weeks is trying to help us understand how do we love God and how do we love people? If this is the, the means by which now God is going to convey an accurate picture of who he is to the world, then I better understand what we mean by love God, love people. And we're going to talk about today that the way in which I grow to love God is to grow in Christ, to grow in the gospel. So we're going to talk about growth today. But the way that I love people is that we're going to talk about the next week, and you can see it in these little things on your, on your chair. We're going to help us understand how do we live together as God's people. So the first thing is, is how do we help people to be the church to the church? We need to help the church actually love one another. Doesn't it sound weird to say Jesus loves you, but then God's people don't love one another? That it contingent upon this accurate picture of who God is to the world is how we care for one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another. But not only are we to love God's people, live together, but we're also to now display God. We're to, we're to have this unique love for our community. Then in other words, we're not just reading the Bible every day so that we can be smart. We're not just hanging out together because we're a glorified Elks Club. And at the end of it, we want our community to know Jesus. And we want all this to come to bear in such a way that our community knows and sees this accurate picture of God by how these people not only talk, but by how they live. And then finally, we would understand that it's not just about seeing me, that God is a God that wants to have the praises of Jesus in every town, in every city. He wants to saturate this planet with the praises of Jesus. He wants to see us do a work globally, and so we need to mobilize ourselves globally to be able to join God in what he's doing. And so that's what we're going to be focused on. That's what we're going to be after. And so at the core of it then today in this idea of grow, where I want to go today is in 1 Peter 2.2, so turn your Bibles to there. And that's kind of what we're going to launch off into what we're doing when we talk about this idea of grow. Now what Peter's going to say is he's going to use this word grow, but he's going to say, look, I want you, like little babies, to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. And then he's going to explain why. 
that by it, he says, you might grow into your salvation. Now, notice how he doesn't say grow past your salvation. Notice how he doesn't say anything other than you're going to grow into what you need to become. Now, the reason that's so important is, is that when I first started running, and I know I don't look like I run anymore, but trust me, back in the day, I actually used to run. It's so overrated. When I was a seventh grader, it was the first time I ever ran track. And I remember the only reason I wanted to run track is because I wanted to play basketball and football. And a guy said, oh, you should run a little bit because, hey, homeboy, you're five feet tall and 150 pounds. And it would probably do you good to skim a little. You're husky is what he said. (laughs) So I thought, well, I'm going to run. Now, anyone that knows this, running is not fun. There's nothing fun about running. Now, once the endorphins kick in, running gets fun. Don't get me wrong. But really, up to that point, most people run because they have another purpose. Now, I can imagine, can you imagine if an angel came and grabbed Todd, and he took Todd in the future, though, and he said, hey, I'd like to show you yourself in college. What do you mean? Well, yeah, you're going to earn a full-ride scholarship to run track at a Division I university, and I would have looked at you in seventh grade and said, seriously? (laughs) Yeah, one day, actually, you're going to become this, and I went into the future and saw who I was going to become. See, this growth thing is so important because I want everyone in here to clearly understand the goal of God in your life is to take you from where you are now and to transform you into the image of Jesus. He's got something so incredible in store for you, so phenomenal of what you will become, those that know know him and walk with him, is that he has a desire to transform you and cause you to grow. But here's what we need to do. How are we going to grow? And I want to give you three things today. And, and I normally don't even do this. I even came up with matching letters at the front just for today, which you know anything about me, that's like bizarre. Okay, now so listen. Everything has to do this morning with the gospel. And the first aspect of it is, is that we need to, number one, if we're going to honestly grow up into our salvation, we need to understand the message of the gospel. That's the first one. If I'm going to understand how to grow up into my salvation, I need to understand that message. So if you could, go with me to John 7. Keep your finger in 1 Peter and go with me to John 7 and look at verse 37. Let me just explain to you. What is it about this message of the gospel that we need to understand if we're going to grow up into the salvation that God's talking about? John 7 and look at verse 37. If you remember right, when I taught through this, Jesus is at this feast. It's a a unique feast in which they pour this water out, and it would have been dead silent. And all of a sudden, in the middle of them pouring it out, Jesus stood up and cried out, verse 37, and said, Listen, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words, I'm that water. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. The gospel does have everything to do with believe, but the idea that Jesus wants them to understand is, is when you believe, I am going to grow you, I'm going to transform you. The message of the gospel is transformation. And even the idea is, is he's, going to, he's talking way back in, is that this Holy Spirit that's going to land on them is going to do a work in them. The message of the gospel is this. Your life cannot produce what needs to be produced. This life exists independently of you, but when God lands his Spirit into your life, watch out. 
Jesus is saying there's something special about these people that receive the Spirit. And you see this like in Acts 1 when the Spirit falls, or Acts 2 when the Spirit falls on them, suddenly this group of people, they start to change. Now I'll never forget when I first came to know Christ, and I don't know how many of you were this way, but when I saw Jesus for who he was, I was blown away. I remember suddenly for the first time understanding truths about him. I was compelled to follow him. I wanted to give my life to him. In my first few years, man, I was passionate and I just loved God. I couldn't get enough of him. I couldn't get enough of the Bible. I couldn't get enough solid Bible teaching. I remember I used to wake up early in the morning because on this particular radio station, I would listen to Chuck Swindoll, followed by John MacArthur, followed by Tony Evans. And I would just sit there for an hour and a half like, this is such good stuff. Go, Chuck. And my Bible, I'm just soaking it up, just blown away by these men that are teaching the Word of God. And I remember John MacArthur, you know, unleashing one verse at a time and me going, I didn't see that in the Bible. But I just heard it. And I remember being blown away by that gap that used to exist between me and God and how Jesus Christ came to me and transformed me. I couldn't in any way close that gap. But Jesus Christ, through his power, closed that gap. And everything apart from Todd, by faith alone, for the first time now, Todd was brought to Jesus. And all those truths were just blowing me away. I remember I just was reading my Bible over and over again. Just couldn't believe all these things that were happening. And even in some ways, those of you that came to Christ maybe a little bit later, you know what it was like when your actions started to change. When you didn't desire some of the things you used to desire anymore, whether it was you know, alcohol or drugs or, or, or sexual sin or, or, or poor language, whatever it is, we just saw this transformation happen to us and we were, just, we were kind of excited that God was doing a work. But soon, the honeymoon was over. I remember when the first time I started to struggle again with sexual sin. I started to struggle with anger. If you know anything about me, on some levels, I'm kind of calm, but underneath that calm is just a battle with anger that goes on inside of me, and, and even too deep within me was pride. See, open up, look at 1 Peter 2.11. This is the thing I didn't understand. The gospel was amazing, but 1 Peter 2.11, I didn't understand that while I was no longer a part of this world, that my allegiances had changed. I, I was now following God. There were still these passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. I didn't realize that a daily basis when I wake up, I'm in a battle. I'm in a battle with these things that go on inside of me. And I thought for sure I had arrived, but now all of a sudden I realized, man, I was stuck in this new gap, this gap that was growing between me and God. And in some ways, I didn't know what to do with it. Is that, yeah, I knew all those truths about coming to him, but I thought, oh gosh, but I still feel like I'm growing distant from God. And I kept going through the motions, but in the end of it, I just knew there was something wrong that was happening. Well, at the same time as all this was taking place, I was reading a book by this guy named Jonathan Edwards. He's probably one of the greatest theologians America's ever seen. And I remember sitting down and reading about what he did in his walk with the Lord. So I thought, then dang it, this is what I need to do. Now, the thing about Jonathan Edwards, he would spend hours upon hours reading his Bible, taking walks and praying. So I thought to myself, okay, this is what I need to do. I read about his resolutions. He wrote these resolutions from the time he was a young man until as he aged about what it meant for him to follow Jesus Christ. So I would read his resolutions going, that's right, I'm going to do these things. 
And if you know me, my personality, I'm an all or nothing personality. And so I tried to work hard. I was going after it. I was going to work. I was taking commentaries with me to work. And on my breaks, I'm reading commentaries going, come on, God, do something in my life. I remember at the end of it, I was grumpy. I was no fun. I was arrogant. And I think even Jesus might have said, dude, you're no fun. I didn't realize that in all of it, what I was doing, I was putting myself into a spiral. And I remember even writing something down at one point that I actually thought to myself, because this is so miserable, it must be God's will. It must be what I need to do. It put me into a tailspin. Man, I started to feel guilty. And after my guilt, I would try harder to do something. I would read more. I would pray more. I would do these different things in some way to try to get over it. Eventually, I would get burnt out. Sin would trap me in some kind of a way. I would do something stupid in my, in my walk with the Lord. Then after a while, then I would feel guilty for quitting. And so this cycle would start all over again. The beauty of the message of the gospel is, is it's all about breaking that stupid cycle. Look in 122. This is his point. First Peter. He says to him, look... You've purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Look at this. Since, you've not been, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So in other words, the means by which I came to him was through this word of God. It was nothing I did. But then look what he does down in 2.2. He says now to stay in this walk with God... You need to stay like a newborn infant and continue to long for the pure spiritual work that milk that by it you might continue to grow in your salvation. In other words, he's saying the same thing that saved you, the same grace that brought you, the same word of God that transformed you, stay in that. I remember I used to have a seminary professor when I took First Peter. He always used to tell us in this. We'd be kind of talking through First Peter and he'd say, gentlemen, never forget you will always be a baby. He said, you must always long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. I would sit there going, dude, you're a guru. (laughs) What he was saying was, is even though a man like him in his mid-60s, the same thing that he did when he first came to know Jesus Christ, he was doing at that point also. He was saying to us, men, in the same way that you couldn't do anything at all to earn your way to God, you can't do anything also in your continuing walk to continue to save yourself. His idea was, is I have to continually be dependent upon God. I am just as dependent upon God as the first day when I came to know him. You need to be like a baby. Paul in Galatians 3 even said this, look, are you so foolish? Although you began with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish with human effort? See, at the end of the day, the Bible is not a self-help book. It's not about, hey, you know, come to Jesus, fix your marriage. Hey, come to Jesus, you know, fix your family. Come to marriage, fix this. The Bible is not about those things. The Bible is about come to God and watch him do the work. It's a completely different way of looking at it. That's Peter's point. He's look, God's plan is not just for us to be saved through the word, but God's plan is for us to continue to grow in grace in the word. I remember walking up to the guy that was discipling me, and I just remember these words still to this day, and I just said, I can't do this. 
I can't keep doing this. I'm tired. I'm worn, out. I'm worn out. And he said to me, and I have his words here, of course you can't, Todd, but now you're finally in the place to see that God can. The moment that we realize I can't, whether it is the moment that I first come to know the Lord or the moment that I now have in my continuing walk with the Lord, my desperation for him is when God loves to step in, and he does. Now, for some of you in here, I think what happens, and it's something that happens in my life, is that we have this tendency to build kind of our walk with God around guilt or around desire for superiority. I know you wouldn't think that, but we love sometimes to be the Bible answer man. We build it around duty. And even the other day I was talking with somebody, and they, I said, why do, you, why do you spend time with the Lord? And, and, and this is what she said to me, because I think it's the least that I could do because he loved me so much. In other words, I looked at her, so you're trying to pay God back. All those things quench the spirit. At the end of the day, all we can do is what this baby does. When I feed a baby, is come and say, I can't do anything. I'm going to come to you, though. Would you change me? That's even his point when you come to like 1 Peter 3.18. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 18. He's explaining to them, look, Christ also suffered for once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why, Peter? That he might bring us to God and being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. He goes on, when you get down to chapter four, why did he do it? Well, you need to understand something that, that since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, you need to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So in other words, he has a goal in mind here, but he says, why? So as to live the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, no longer trying to fix your life, no longer trying to be the one that thinks you can do it, but what? For the will of God. Peter's saying to these people, at the very end of it, you're striving and straining. All the things that you do, do nothing. It is coming to God because it's his will and saying, God, I can't. Would you please do it in me so that I might live the way that you want me to live? That's why it's so key, I think, for us to understand when we think about this walk with Jesus, when we think about the message of the gospel, at the core of it, it's saying to us, you can't. Now, some people will say to me at different points, you know what, I don't even know if I want to want to, to live the will of God. I don't even know if I want to live for him. You know, I, I don't want to go to hell. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to go to hell, but I really don't want to follow Jesus. And I would say to them, then you miss the point. That's why in 2.3, he says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. There might come a point where even maybe one of you, and I don't know, might look at it and go, you know what? The only reason I've even come to Jesus is because I want to escape hell. Jesus did not save you to escape hell. He saved you to join him in what he's doing. And what he's doing is bringing praise to God. So that's the first one, the message of the gospel. Here's the second thing, if we're going to grow into our salvation, which the next one, when we speak about the gospel, it's the measure of the gospel. Now, the thing about Americans, don't we love to measure how we stack up? Americans are funny that way. Man, we love nothing more to know who's fastest, who's strongest, who does this, who does that. And in this weird way, we really want to know who's the best. The other day I was at my daughter's cross-country meet. And I never thought I would be this parent, but my daughter comes around and everything in me wanted to go, go, baby, you got to beat that idiot little girl in front of you. Win! I mean, I was just like, oh my gosh. I, I was like, oh no, I'm that dad. I'm that dad. <laughs> All of a sudden, this weird competitive side of me came back. And it's like so weird how we want it. You can beat that time faster. 
sister, you know, and my daughter's so not that. She's like flipping her hair, like running. (laughs) You're your mom's kid. (laughs) And the sad thing about that, if you think about it, is we brought it into the church. In fact, when we measure success inside of a church, when we decide what it is inside of the gospel that measures success, oftentimes what we do is we measure how many people are engaged in a church and how much money that church gives. And if you've ever thought about it, that's sick. So the only value inside of our church is if you actually show up. So if you don't show up, what it is is we don't look good. And if you don't give enough, then we don't have enough to do what we want to do. That is just sick. And everyone knows, like, at their gut, that can't be how we measure the success of a church. Now, in a weird way, that's what we do. In other words, if only two people showed up today, I would struggle because then I might not have a job at the end of this. But we would say, oh, today was unsuccessful. If we don't give enough this week, oh, today was kind of unsuccessful. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't works of the gospel inside of us that cause churches to be able to expand and cause churches to be able to have finances, to be able to do things, but that can't be the measure. Not only that, but oftentimes, even in our personal lives, the weird ways in which we measure are just dumb. Oftentimes, how we measure is not by who we are and what God is doing in our life, but we measure it by what we do. I remember when I was in college in the 90s, when I first came to know Jesus, the big question everybody would ask when you'd walk up to somebody is, hey, how's your quiet time? And I remember my first few months, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so good. And I meant it. I mean, I was just in the word. I was hearing all these sermons. And so people, they, I think, stopped asking me because I'd be like, well, let me just tell you, there's five, you know, and I'm just, don't talk to Todd. But after a while, I'll never forget when I really was struggling in my walk with the Lord, somebody came up and asked me, how's your quiet time? And the first thing that happened when that, when that took place is I felt fear, I felt shame, and I lied. I got into a pattern of trying to convey myself as somebody that I wasn't. I remember as people came up, I used to feel so terrible because they'd come up, you know, and how's your quiet time? And I did that weird fake voice, oh, so good, brother, you know, never been so wonderful. All the while knowing, man, I'm not, my quiet times haven't been good. Not only that, sometimes we measure it by how devoted you are to a local church. There's all these different measurements we use, but what's interesting is, is that's not the measurement that the Bible uses to determine how we're doing and growing into our salvation. I'm not saying those aren't great byproducts of it. I'm not saying that that, that we shouldn't have time with the Lord quiet times. I'm not saying we shouldn't be devoted. But those are things that we do as far as how I now do to, to engage with God. But God says, I'm seeking to be transformational in your life. And so when we get to 1 Peter 2, 1, you'll see this, that one of the aspects of someone, one of the ways that I can measure the work of the gospel in my life is, is that I begin to crave the things of this world less and less. He even slays out for us these various things, and Pat nailed it so well. It wasn't a conclusive list. He was just saying there's all these things that cause me not to hunger for God's word. And so those of us that know Jesus, that walk with Jesus, we know that we don't want anything anything to do with those things that Jesus died for. One of the ways I'll know that I'm growing into my salvation is that I want those things less and less and less. But not only that... 
But I'll start to crave other things. God will start doing a work in my life. You'll even see this like in Galatians 5. Paul will even say that. Those that are in the flesh, that desire the things of the flesh, this is what it looks like. But then he's going to lay out for these people that walk with Jesus. Here's what it looks like when you walk with Jesus. You will start to see, and this is the measurable thing we should look at, you will start to see more love coming out of our lives. You'll start to see more joy coming out of our lives, more peace coming out of our life, more patience coming out of our life, more kindness coming out of our life, more goodness coming out of our life, more faithfulness, more gentleness. We'll start to see self-control. See, there was one group of people during the time of Jesus that were so good at quiet times, at money, at, at numbers, at devotion. They were called Pharisees. And Jesus came in and said, do you want to know what it looks like to grow up in your salvation? I'll put it in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. You'll know that you're growing into your salvation, not when all these other things concern you, but when you're being drawn to love God and love people. And the means by which we love people are all filled out inside of what Galatians 5 says the Spirit does in our life. Now, next week, we're going to cover this idea of what it means to live together. One of the main reasons that we need to live together is that there's, well, there's two reasons that I'm just thinking off the top of my head. One is that we need the body in our life because we all know we have blind spots, don't we? We all have blind spots in what it means to know God and love God and follow God. So I need the body of Christ to speak into my life. But the other thing is, is that this is not a Lone Ranger event. God has called groups of people to display how amazing he is. And so in it, we're going to talk next week in this idea of what it means to fulfill what God's called us to do is that we actually need to be in relationship with one another. So the first one is what with the gospel? The message, good. What's the second one? Measure. Measure. Now here's the third one, just to put it down. The third one is the means by which this gospel is carried out. Now, this is really crucial Everything I've said up to now, we're not to in any way dissuade you from being engaged in what sometimes people call the spiritual disciplines. I truly believe that God has given us things like time in the word and time in prayer and fasting and giving. There's all these things that God has laid out in his word to help us understand how to to walk with him and and how to know him and, and how to be transformed by him. One guy I was just reading recently, he gave a definition of spiritual disciplines. He said, look, they can be described as behaviors that facilitates spiritual growth. I thought, that's not bad. Another guy put it this way, though. He said, spiritual disciplines are the way in which I put myself in God's presence so that he might change me. I like that. My time in the word is that I would put myself in God's presence. My time in prayer, all these different things come to bear in such a way that I put myself into God's presence and I put myself in his path as a means of saying, God, I can't change me, but I come to you now. And the way you've called me to come to you, make me different. It reminds me back just a few weeks ago, I was looking at Mark 10 and I was reading through. And if you can remember, there was a a beggar in the crowd called Bartimaeus and He was on the side of the road and he heard that Jesus was coming. And in some way, this blind beggar got himself in a position where Jesus could hear him. And this is the words he said when he came by. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, everybody in the crowd was looking at him and you can even hear it. They're telling him, man, shut up. Jesus is coming by. But he was not dissuaded in the least. He keeps pushing more in there and he just goes, son of David, have mercy on me. What spiritual disciplines are is this very thing. 
I'm putting myself in front of God and I'm saying, God, in the same way I needed mercy at the very beginning when I came to you, I'm doing what you've asked me to do so that I might come and stand in your presence and you might have amazing mercy on me like you've had from the very beginning. I read the word, so I just come in in front of him to understand more of who he is and what he wants to do in this world and so that he might have unique mercy and lavish grace upon me. I spend time in prayer telling him the truths in my heart, begging on behalf of others that they too might, might join God in what he's doing. I fast, not because it's a weird thing to do, but because I want God to squelch my things for this world and cause me to hunger in a greater and a greater way for him. I give because I, I don't want the things of this world to trap me. I want him to use them in, in ways that advance his kingdom in a greater way. I sing the truths of God because I don't know what it is, but there's something beautiful about singing, except when I sing, that does cause you to just think in a different way about who God is. I meditate, and I'm not talking hummity hummity where I empty my mind. I'm talking I fill my mind with scripture so that I can sit and think about the amazingness of God. Now, the key to this, though, to remember, and the reason that I couldn't be Jonathan Edwards is because everyone is different. God is not asking Todd, and that rhymes, to be Jonathan Edwards. I mean, can you imagine as a parent if I expected my kids to be the same? Some of your parents out there going, there ain't no way. Now, there's principles that we bring to bear, but the other day we're driving around, and if you know anything about my daughter, she's a little anal annie. We come up to a stop sign, and I forgot to turn on my blinker. She goes, Dad, turn on your blinker. <laughs> no. <laughs> on the freeway, Dad, are you going too fast? None of your business. <laughs> Dad, those shoes don't look good with your shirt. They're flip-flops. <laughs> my daughter is so different and so unique. Man, my son, when we pull up to the stop sign, he doesn't care. He's got his fingers so far up his nose looking at bugs, and that's what his world is. But here's the beauty of God. He understands that all of us are different, and while those things that I talked about, those disciplines, all come to bear in my life, they come to bear in a different way, at different times, in different ways. We understand that the book of 1 Peter wasn't just written to the same person. It was written to slaves and masters. It was written to people under all kinds of different forms of government. It was written to husbands and wives. It was written to a diversity of people, and yeah, these principles came to bear, but he understood that all these different people were in different spots, and even when we get to 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, he acknowledges not everybody's the same. How we then work it out is different. Not everybody this morning was called to preach, but all of us today are called to be the body of Christ in all kinds of diverse, different ways. One guy that I was reading this week, he said, week, he said this is what's so amazing about God. He understands what each person needs, and he brings to bear on them exactly what they need at the time to be able to trans be transformed into the person he wants them to be. So in other words... This is what he wrote. He said he had Abraham take a walk. He had Elijah take a nap. Joshua and the people of Israel took a lap. That rhymed again. He gave Moses a 40-year timeout and Noah a three-day timeout. 
He gave David a harp and a dance and a giant to kill. He gave Paul a pen and a scroll. He wrestled with Jacob. He argued with Job. He whispered to Elijah. He warned Cain. He comforted Hagar. He gave Hosea a prostitute for a wife. Miriam got a song. Peter got a new name. Elisha was handed a mantle. Jesus was stern with the rich young ruler. He was tender with the woman caught in adultery. He was patient with the disciples. He was blistering with the scribes. He was gentle with the children. He was gracious with the thief on the cross. God never does it the same way in our lives. And to create cookie-cutter ways of turning out Christians is just crazy. When we talk about grow inside of Cornerstone, we understand that no one, no one, two of you, no two of you, there we go, are the same. Which means we can't have a cookie-cutter approach. Now, there's some principles that need to come to bear in your life, but the way he talks about it in First Ephesians 2.10 is that every last one of you are a workmanship of God. You're a masterpiece of the master. You've been designed specifically to fit inside of the local church in such a fabulous and phenomenal way that when all of this comes together as a church, Jesus Christ looks beautiful. And so now if I as a pastor try to make you into somebody that's like me or like somebody I want you to be and not who God wants you to be, I've totally missed the point of what God wants to do in your life in order to form you into what this church and what this church in Simi Valley and in this world needs to display how amazing God is. I feel like we do that sometimes with our kids. Man, my little son, if anybody's a qualifier for ADD, man, he is. But man, God made him that way. I have to now figure out inside of that precious little boy's life, God, teach me how to bring the gospel to bear on this precious little boy to harness him for your kingdom and your good. Each little individual piece matters to God. And one last thought on this. When you get to like 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, and just actually go there. Look at verse 10. He says in there that each of you are individual, but look at this. In your individuality, you're to use your individuality to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says, all of you are formed differently, he says, but understand something. You don't determine how God chose to make you. God determines how he chose to make you because you didn't write yourself in this story because this story is not about you. It's about God. And we will never find more contentment and more joy and more security than we quit trying to make ourselves what we think we're supposed to be and finally submit ourselves to God and go, God, what did you form me to be? What do you want me to do with my life? What is it that inside of this church is my piece to play so that I might now be a member of this holy nation, this royal priesthood, your own possession for a purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of God to the world? God, I'm done trying to tell myself what I'm supposed to be. What is it that you want me to be? And we're going to talk about it next week. We're going to talk about it next week is, is that that's why we need the body too. We need the body to speak into our lives and say, man, are you kidding me? You would be phenomenal at this. So what are some things we're going to be doing then? Let me put a little period on this. 
Over the next year, one of the things we're going to try to do is to create opportunities for people to grow in their love and their passion of Jesus Christ inside of grace. Now, some of you are newer believers in here, and we need to treat you like newer believers. We need to understand that there are certain things that you need as a new believer to be able to understand Jesus in a new way. I remember a guy came up to me probably about three or four months ago, and he just handed me his Bible, and he goes, I don't know how this thing works. (laughs) Now, we giggle at that. Why? Because we've all been there. And so I looked at him, and I said, well, there's 66 books. They're put into two different sections called the Old Testament and the New Testament. I said, and the whole story is all about God. I said, it has a phenomenal beginning It has a problem that happens in the middle of it. It has a phenomenal solution, which, by the way, is all of God. And let me tell you something. The ending is phenomenal. You should read it. And he looked back at me, and he said, so that's what it's about? I said, yeah. And he goes, thank you. And he walked away, and I haven't seen him since, so I don't know what that means. (laughs) There's truths about what we believe in, isn't there? that newer believers need to understand. They need to understand that story I'm telling you about. But even too, I believe there's those of you in here that have followed Christ for a time. In some ways, maybe some of you even heard me say what I was saying today, and you're like, yeah, you're right. I'm in that weird cycle you were in, Todd, or, man, I'm in that place that you were talking about in which I'm measuring completely wrong or whatever it is, and we need to give you opportunities to be able to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe your marriage is on the fritz. And you need this church to come alongside of you because in order for you to proclaim accurately who God is, we need marriages that are healthy. Maybe your family's struggling. Maybe your finances are struggling. In all those different things, we want to give opportunities for those of you in here to be able to come in and to grow in those things. But listen to me. It's not just so that we can make your life easier. It's so that we can unleash you to be who God's created you to be, to be able to announce to the world who Jesus Christ is. We believe all these things come together, whether it's classes for leaders or whatever, that's what it's for. But at the end of it, I'm going to go back to where I started last week. We don't work harder. We draw nearer. Jesus died to draw us nearer. He's our advocate to continue to draw us nearer. And let me tell you something, when he comes back one day, talk about near. We're going to get all the nearness we can do for eternity. Take advantage of it now. Amen? Amen. I always say this before, I'll say it again. I truly love you. And I am so excited about this year. I am so excited to see what God's going to do in our life as we as a church begin to draw near to him as we begin to grow into our salvation. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for every person that's here. Thank you for the grace you've given us. Thank you for the amazing message of the gospel. Thanks so much that, that you called us not to, to work harder, but to draw nearer so that your work might happen in our lives. God, I understand it's not just a let go and let God. I understand we have a part to play in this as we put ourselves in front of you, that you might have mercy upon us. God, help us to measure it correctly. Help us to see fruit coming out of our lives, the promise of John 15. And then, God, would you take every individual in here, transform them into the people that you want them to be so that this church and the other churches in Simi and even in this nation and this world can accurately proclaim to this world just how amazing you are. Give us that grace. In your precious name we pray. Amen.